Welcome to the Arlington Street Church podcast. Founded in 1729, Arlington Street continues today as a gathering place for progressive people of faith in the greater Boston area and beyond. We are located at the corner of Arlington and Boylston Streets, across from the Public Garden in Boston, Massachusetts. Please visit ASCBoston.org for more information about this historic Unitarian Universalist congregation. Arlington Street Church, gathered in love and service for justice and peace. When my friend and now retired colleague, Anita Farber-Robertson, was maybe five years old, she lived in Brooklyn with her parents and her grandmother on the fifth floor of a five-story walk-up. You can picture this, three apartment buildings facing a common courtyard with clotheslines strung through the air, anchored at kitchen windows, crossed from each other, zigzagging all the way up. One day, Anita was, uh, wanted to get from where she was playing in the kitchen to her bedroom on the opposite end of the apartment. In between, in the living room, her brand new baby sister was asleep on the couch, nestled in her sleeping mother's arms. Anita knew to be very quiet, knew she couldn't walk through the living room, so it occurred to her that she could use the clothesline to bypass the living room to get herself across. Keep in mind that she was five, the details were a little vague, and keep in mind that she was five stories up. She let herself out the kitchen window, took hold of the clothesline, and made her way hand over hand, pulling herself toward the opposite wall. It was all going well until she got to the very middle and the weight of her body made it impossible with her little arms to pull herself back up, up, up to that opposite window. So she hung there, dead center over the courtyard, letting go of one hand to blow on it because it was starting to hurt and then the other. And then because her plan wasn't going to work after all, she let go. Do I think it was a miracle that Anita fell five stories and lived to tell this story? I do. Somehow, somehow, she landed in the shrubbery and was relatively unscathed. She remembers her grandmother leaning over her in the enormous hospital bed and intoning, God saved you for something. God saved you for something. It's a blessing and a challenge and a meditation. Let me quickly add that Anita's grandmother was Jewish. She wasn't talking about saved in the Christian sense of salvation. In a moment, I'll get back to that kind of save that she meant. But first, if you, like me, need to brush up a little on what Christians mean when they talk about being saved. Here it is. We need to be saved, they say, because of the total depravity of the whole human race. We need to be saved, they say, because every aspect of our being has been corrupted by sin. We need to be saved, they say, because we are under the wrath of God. 
And how is that going to happen? Jesus lived and died for our sins, they say, and simply welcoming Jesus into our hearts will save us from eternal hell. Otherwise, it's curses. Back to Anita's Jewish grandmother, I like the way she used the word saved when she told Anita that God had saved her for something. So this is a sermon on what we might mean when we speak of being saved. Let's ask this as questions like this. For what were you saved? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a soul like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was bound, but now I'm free. For what are you saved? We could sit very quietly for a long time with these questions on our hearts. I commend us to it, you and me, every one of us. But here's another question, perhaps the question that's underneath that question. What's saving us? What's saving us? My colleague in Sherburne, Sherburn, Massachusetts, the good Reverend Nathan Dietering tells this story. It is years ago, he says, we are living in Dorchester on the first floor of a triple-decker. Baby number one is not yet a year old. Baby number two is not even a dream because you would have to be sleeping to dream. I am still in seminary. Karen is back at work full-time supporting us all. How did we do it? If I were to use God language, the answer would be by the grace of God. (laughs) Three blocks from our home, we found a daycare provider to watch the baby. Her name was Angela, but everyone called her Auntie Angel because that's really what she was for us. And it was to this angel that we gave our child three mornings a week. Thank you, Theo, for the, for the you know, beautiful sound effects to help me preach. It's <laughs> fabulous, just perfect. Here he is, angel, I say to her as I hand over the round ball that is our son, swaddled and perfect. She takes him, cradles him in her arms and says, I hear from your wife that you're in seminary. You want to be a pastor? Yes, I say. What kind, she asks. The good kind, I say. I'm not being flip, I mean it. And then, still holding my beautiful boy, she asks, but are you saved? Are your people saved? What Nathan wants to say to her is, who needs saving, angel? Who needs to be born again? Angel, you and I were born right the first time. There is no hell, angel. Drawing on our Unitarian Universalist, he wants to repeat, no hell, no hell, no eternal damnation, and no original sin, only 
original blessing. But Nathan keeps these things to himself. They leave the question of salvation behind. And he makes a note to refrain from discussing religion with Angel. Years pass, he says, we fall down. We get up, or at least we try. And whereas once I would have dismissed Angel's question, are you saved? Now I feel, stay with me here, less reactive, more curious. Now I'm reading how the Hebrew word for salvation originates from the word to make wide, to make wide enough to survive the tight places, to survive between the rock and the hard place. If you, like Angel, had been widowed young and were left to raise two sons alone in a city and a school system that offered few openings, few opportunities in that place of so many tight places, so little salvation. Would you not be asking questions about being saved? Reverend Nathan Dietering concludes, oh, how we mess up. How we fall short of the people we want to be how we find ourselves in tight places sometimes, some of them not our fault, some of them definitely not our fault. And how our lives cry out for light poking through, for openings, for doorways, for salvation. And how will we answer those questions? Are you saved? Are your people saved? What is saving you? We can come to this question backwards. Most of us can articulate what's killing us. Stress, worry, grief, not enough, too much. But then come around and approach it head on, what is life-giving? What big things, what little things are saving us? If you have no idea, maybe you could go way, way back in your life. Ask, what used to bring me joy? What did I do in my spare time? What did I do for fun? One of the things I noticed during the COVID lockdown was the way some of us dug deep into the best of our childhood or teenage years for sources of joy. Stores that sold bicycles and musical instruments sold out. Art supplies, markers and coloring books and stuff for scrapbooking sold out. There was lots of reading, valiant attempts to write poetry, much downloading of language apps. In supermarkets, the baking aisle was gutted. So many people circled back to our earliest days of enchantment in the kitchen. And as a counterbalance, there was a whole movement of movement. 
people seeking through yoga, lifting, spinning, swimming, and walking to reclaim the body that could run and run and run our PF flyers thwacking against the sidewalk. Somehow we knew to steer toward what had saved us in the past, to steer toward joy. American Episcopal priest, Reverend Barbara Brown Taylor asks, what is saving our lives right now? What is helping you to make those tight places a little bit wider? What's helping you? She answers, what is saving my life now is the conviction that there is no spiritual treasure to be found apart from the bodily experiences of human life on earth. My life depends on engaging the most ordinary physical activities with the most exquisite attention I can give them. My life depends on ignoring all touted distinctions between the secular and the sacred, the physical and the spiritual, the body and the soul. What is saving my life now is becoming more fully human, trusting that there is no way to God apart from real life in the real world. What's saving you now? Let's get curious. Ask, what do I love? What fills me up? What brings me joy? Some of you know that Kem and I live at a private high school with 31 teenagers. In an animated conversation about their college essays, my ears perked up when the grown-worthy third Brown University supplemental essay came up, it asks prospective students to respond to the following prompt. Whether big or small, mundane or spectacular, tell us about something that brings you joy. 200 to 250 words. I Googled it. The first thing that comes up is a live stream on how to write this essay. <laughs> the big takeaways are, so you don't have to watch, to avoid writing an academic essay, to choose a topic that genuinely interests you, to make the mundane interesting, be memorable, and show commitment and improvement over time. Like my wife's students, I find it cringeworthy. So much joy for the sake of joy. Designer Ingrid Fattel Lee is the author of Joyful, The Surprising Power of Ordinary Things to Create Extraordinary Happiness. She makes the point that there's something really powerful in the idea that there's a lot of overlap in the things in which we all find joy. Sunrise, sunset, and in between, nature, art, music, a good book, a lovely cup of something to drink with a friend, 
our animal companions, laughter, the smell of something tasty, a simple act of kindness, making a gift, gratitude, a cozy bed. Maybe some things on that list or on the lists that that list inspires are saving you now. What's making space between the tight places in your life? This is a worthy reflection. Just thinking about it opens our hearts and brightens us up. I did a quick free association, what's saving me now, and came up with our pandemic babies, people who say an enthusiastic yes, nuns and fun team, laughing and crying, the humanity in animal rescue videos, trees in bud, the slightest hint that the brittleness of the pandemic is softening. And the new poem, Dance Party, by American poet Clint Smith. Thanks to Alan Kemp, here's just a little of it. Sometimes in the evenings after dinner, after the spaghetti has been slurped and I have bribed the broccoli into their bellies, I give both of my children the look. When my eyes meet theirs, they know what time it is. They push in their chairs, they stretch their legs, and we move the table to the far end of the dining room to clear space for what we all know is coming. Alexa, play the post-dinner dance party playlist. And within seconds, Martha Wash's booming voice rolls like thunder over our bodies. Everybody dance now. Immediately, the jumping begins. My daughter is flinging her limbs like an offbeat octopus. And my son is doing the robot or is trapped in a universe where robots take over the bodies of little boys in peanut butter pajamas. My children, bless them, have not learned how to clap on the two and four, so I laugh but also cringe and, caught up in the ecstasy of this moment, fall to the ground and convince this no longer young body that it is a good idea to start doing the worm. When my children see me, their eyes become pools of possibility, and it is clear that they see this as a clarion call to climb onto my back. And now here we are, this strange trifecta, this unlikely trio, a robot, an octopus, riding the back of a worm who will most certainly need some Tylenol before bed. It is at this moment that their mother comes home. And when she enters the door, everyone is screaming. The speakers are blasting and the percussion is shaking every wall around us. We look up at her and she looks down at us and we have no explanation for this strange scene. Only 
an invitation for her to join. What's saving you now? Oh, my beloved spiritual companions, just one more thing. First and foremost, what's saving me now and has saved me for a long time now is you. Amen. And now for our benediction, I invite you to put your hands over your heart and namaste. I bow to the divine in you. From doctor and missionary, philosopher and musician Albert Schweitzer, at times our own light goes out and is rekindled by a spark from another person. Each of us has cause to think with deep gratitude of those who have lighted the flame in us. Let us keep this faith, beloveds, and pass it on. The service begins when the service ends. Bless your hearts. I love you. Amen. Please visit ASCBoston.org for more information about this historic Unitarian Universalist congregation. Arlington Street Church, gathered in love and service for justice and peace.